sponsor CBT Nuggets is IT training for IT professionals and anyone looking to build IT skills. If you want to make fully operational your networking, cloud, security, automation, or DevOps battle station, visit cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Oh boy, do we have a show for you today. We are going to go, I was going to say deep on AWS Net. I don't know how deep we actually get into AWS Lambda specifically, but we have developer advocate Julian Wood joining us, and we do get a pretty thorough introduction to Lambda, what it can do, its use cases, and so on. There was a lot here, and Julian was very enthusiastic. Yeah, I, so the thing that struck me is Julian and and we talked for almost an hour, maybe a little bit more. And during that time, I feel like we only scratched the surface. Like there's so much more to what you can do with Lambda, the use cases, how it functions. We didn't even get to talk about security and monitoring, so maybe that's a whole other episode. Uh, it was just very engaging and interesting conversation about Lambda and, and filled in some gaps for me that I didn't even know I had. <laughs> I felt the same way. Filled in gaps I didn't know I had because as we kept talking about what you could do with Lambda and the appropriate use cases, it began to it made me rethink how I think about computing and how computing work gets done. And I think you that are listening, you're gonna feel the same. So enjoy this conversation with AWS's Julian Wood. Julian Wood from AWS. Hey man, welcome to the show. And uh, I don't think you've been on Day Two Cloud before. In fact, I know you haven't. So let's introduce you to the audience. Who are you, and what do you do? Well, thank you so much for inviting me, a longtime listener. I think I've listened to all of your shows, so it's a privilege and an honor to be among such esteemed packet pushers. So yeah, thank you. Uh, my name is Julian Wood. I work as a developer advocate within the serverless team at AWS. And I've got some. I've got an awesome job, and I work with builders, uh, developers, to help them understand how best to build serverless applications, as well as being there's voices internally. So any feedback, or any kind of stuff, um, I bring that internally to making sure we do the best we can to build serverless products. Okay, so when you say developer advocate, then you're kind of a, a, a middleman, a proxy between people that are consuming the Lambda service as developers and the internal team at AWS that is producing the product. Exactly. So yeah, we work within the product team. So with all the product managers and the engineers who are writing the cool, funky stuff. And yeah, work exactly as that proxy on the outbound stuff of helping people understand it. And then uh, on the inbound stuff too. First things is, you know, the adoring praise as well as the gripes and moans <laughs> for, <laughs> for whatever's happening. Um, but then also, you know, acting as developers and helping the product managers uh, develop the products and going through all the iterations and, you know, having our customer hat on to be able to, yeah, help them do their job better and they help us do our jobs better. Cool, man. Let's jump into the serverless discussion then. And I'm going to skip the old joke that oh, serverless is made up of servers. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Okay, ha. Huh. Well, now you tell me. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but, but in a sentence or two, what, what is serverless? And let's let's define it in a kind of a general sense, not the AWS sense for the moment. We're going to get into the AWS version in, in a minute. But I want to hear from a broad sense how you would define serverless. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to think of it as serverless is the practice of using or the practice or an idea of using managed services combined with event-driven compute functions with the overall goal of avoiding or minimizing infrastructure management, configuration, operations, and maybe idle capacity. That sounds very high level, and I know it's a bit marketing-y kind of spiel, but the idea is two different things. You want to avoid infrastructure management, so that's the kind of thing, not managing servers, not managing pods, not managing operating system updates, not managing patching, all that kind of thing. Uh, but that's from your code perspective. Then also connecting that code to services natively, that may be via an API or a messaging kind of thing. And so you don't have to then run all these separate systems yourself. You can just consume the awesome powers of the cloud by using these managed kind of services. Now, I think of it as a service that is instantiated on demand. If I want the function to run, I make a call, the function spins up very quickly, runs, and then it's gone. Is that correct that or not so much? That is correct. So if we're talking about the big picture, 
let's say serverless is the big picture, which I'm talking about, the managed services, uh, functions, uh, code, all those kind of things, and linking these different things together. Now, Lambda is our compute service, which is functions as a service. And you can think of that as a little block within the big serverless ecosystem. Right, so right. serverless has a whole bunch of different products, speaking from AWS. These is AWS Lambda, which we will talk loads about. But there are other things such as API gateways for hosting APIs. And we've got you know many messaging systems. So that moves data around or stuff around for events, topics, queues, things like um, EventBridge, SQS, SNS, uh, Kinesis, I don't think many others, but uh, there, you know a number of AWS services that do that. And then there's also you know workflow or workflow orchestration. Uh, we've got a product for step functions with that, and so you know that's connecting them all to the myriad world of AWS services. And then a portion of that is your actual function code, which is uses the AWS Lambda service. Okay, so yeah, I think it's really important to disambiguate the functions as a service with the larger serverless concept. Correct. Because that does, so uh, functions as a service was one of the big uh, starters of the serverless movement, if you want to call it, but it is just a small portion of it. And I mean, let's be honest, it is a terrible name. I mean, I don't know why in IT we name things for what they aren't rather than what they are. So it's serverless, (laughs) well, what does that mean? I mean, same like NoSQL, okay, so it's not SQL, but then what is it? So yeah, we're... In IT, we have naming issues, but um, yeah, that's just the way it is. And in fact, Lambda is a history story, if you don't mind me uh, delving back into the Wayback Machine. It wasn't ever defined as serverless when it was uh, first announced. Uh, And it actually grew out of the S3 org. So organizations, So, if you're not sure, S3 is our object storage uh, system, which literally just stores a ridiculous amount of data in the cloud. It's got, I think, 11 lines of availability. It is one of the sort of world wonders in terms of uh, storage. And people within the org had a great idea. They were like, well, hang on, if, if somebody uploads a file, it's not a file, but it's an object in S3 parlance, but think of it as a file. Uh, wouldn't it be cool if you could just run an action on that? Somebody uploads a file. I don't need to then have a po- a process that polls that or some kind of server that needs to run something, can't we just do an immediate action? And so that's actually where the crux of Lambda was initially thought of and born. And then obviously the the clever clogs in the universe and at AWS looked at that and went, well, hang on, let's not just do that for S3. Why can't we do that for everything within AWS and even broader? So why can't we create this event-driven model where an event happens, yes, uploading um, a file or an object to S3, any other kind of event, you know, hitting an HTTP endpoint, uh, you know, consuming something off a queue, a cron job, all these kind of things. Why can't we just create, uh, run a little bit of code in response to that event? And that Lambda was born. So that's where it sort of comes from. Uh, and it was all started as event-driven computing. That was this whole idea that you have an event, something that happens, it kicks off, and this little bit of your custom code would run. Your custom code would do some processing on that data. So maybe for an S3 thing, it's going to you know, resize it or it's going to remove the color from a, a picture or it's going to do some sentiment analysis on whatever's uploaded in that file and then dump its output or push its output somewhere else. Okay. Okay. So I think that really does set the stage for us in terms of what Lambda is. If I was looking at Lambda and I wanted to consume it, what are the core components? It sounds like you, you, you sort of outlined them a little bit, but let's just revisit that for a second so I got it straight in my head. Yeah, certainly. Well, so if we think of Lambda as a service that just automatically runs your code without requiring you to provision or manage infrastructure, you write your code, you upload it to Lambda. And your code is the thing that's actually important. You know, that's the addressable thing. That's your sort of business value if you want to talk, talk about it. The important stuff isn't really the resources for your code. And so, you know, you don't have to bind your function to a collection of machines or a pod or anything that's addressable. You're just saying, I have a Lambda function and I want to allocate it a little bit of memory. And that memory is its power. And you get a proportional amount of CPU, you get a proportional amount of network and some configuration. And then you just say, um, every time it runs with this amount of memory and whether whether, Lambda in the background spins up 18,000 cores or one core, not my problem. I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to worry where those cores exist, where all of that happens. And the whole idea is, you know, you can you can get this amazing power of using a equivalent of a distributed computer 
being the power of AWS Lambda without needing to know anything about distributed computing. And that means you can build and create value to your customers far quicker. Now, you said upload my code. Do I have to package it in some way, deliver it as a container, send a binary? What does that really mean? Absolutely. So you can start by creating a Lambda function in the AWS console, and there's a little window there where you literally paste your code in. Now, that's the easy way to do it via the console, and uh, there's a number of different languages that you can write your code. Um, where's my list here? Because it's big enough to not remember offhand. So things like the native languages that uh, Lambda supports is Java, Go, PowerShell, Node.js, C Sharp, Python, and Ruby. So those are the native um, languages. But then there's actually a thing called the Runtime API, where you can create functions that run for any other language, and you just you've got to do some more stuff to connect to the to create some connectivity within the Lambda service. And people have done weird and wonderful things. They've created COBOL functions and you know, Elixir and any kind of thing. So literally, the world is your oyster. You can go and create functions in any kind of language. But we've got a whole bunch of the languages that we support, where obviously that makes life neat, uh, nice and easy, and that's native. Right. So your function code is just a little bit of code. Let's say... Java or Node.js or Python or whatever, something that people understand. And it's a little bit of code, and it has a function within that code that is called the handler. And what happens is you then have that piece of code. As I said, you could just literally copy and paste it into the console. Or what you can do from your uh, command line is you can zip that up. And it's literally just zipping up one file. That's the one way of doing it for what we call zip archive functions. There's another whole way you can actually package functions as a container image. And I will go into more detail with that, but let's not muddy the waters with too much confusion <laughs> as your brain is already spinning around wondering what the heck I'm talking about. So you take this little bit of code, which has got a function in it, and you zip that up and you upload it to Lambda. In the background, it happens to be stored on S3. You don't see that, you don't care. Mm -hmm. What you then do is you can then invoke that Lambda function. So from, your, from the console, from your workstation, via the Lambda API, any number of ways you can invoke that function. What Lambda is going to do in the background is it's going to spin up a what's called an execution environment, which is basically mm -hmm. a secure, isolated bunch of compute. Now, I'm avoiding using the word container because it's not strictly a container, and the container mm -hmm. purists go, oh, yes, but, and head along a whole <laughs> dangerous um, sidebar quest that doesn't get us anywhere. But if you think of it in terms of an isolation mechanism, it's actually a virtual machine, and it's called a firecracker virtual machine. And what we've yep. done is in, instead of having um, isolation at a container slash Docker kind of level, we actually do it at a virtual machine level. Hmm. Every single Lambda function that runs is in its own isolated virtual machine. It's tiny, spins up super quickly. It's literally got no other devices. It doesn't have a webcam or USB or any of these kind of things connected. I think it's literally got a a network device and a keyboard. And the keyboard is some way, you know, it's probably that you have to hit F1 to continue or something. I'm joking. But, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it needs to have a keyboard and then obviously some network connectivity to, to get in and a little bit of storage. But that's all that the, uh, that little micro VA, that little micro VM has. So that micro VM is spun up, Lambda downloads your code into that micro VM and runs the code that is in your handler. In the rest of your function, you've also got some initialization code so that, uh, that can actually happen before the reinvoke. We'll get onto that when we talk about um, cold and warm starts. But ultimately, your function is going to run and pass its results back to Lambda, which sends it back to you. Cool. Now, you said that micro VM spins up very quickly. We're talking milliseconds, I think, right? We, we are talking milliseconds. So uh, in the background, what's actually going to happen is Lambda maintains a fleet of a little bit more than one or two of these micro VMs all around the world. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually trillions of invocations a month that are happening for Lambda. So there are a lot of these little micro VMs that are happening. And the Lambda service in the background is going to maintain, obviously, a rather large fleet of these micro VMs. And they run on standard bare metal EC2 instances, which we call worker nodes. So those are the servers that actually run serverless. Um, just like you know, networking guys, like the wires that run wireless, you know, that sort of kind of concept. They're low, when you run wireless, there are loads of wires in the background. You know, with serverless, there's loads of servers in the background. 
And so we manage a fleet of those uh, functions. We then manage the runtime. So things like the Java and Node and Python, the actual interpreter, the runtime, we manage that for you. We stick that code on within those little uh, micro VMs that are running on the workers. And then that's sort of all ready to go. So we've got a, you know, we've got a fleet of Python 3.8 and a fleet of Java ones all ready to rumble. And as soon as your function code in, there's a, a mapping service which says, ah, there we've got a spare micro VM uh, ready to go. And your Python 3.8 code, for example, or three code is, is copied into that um, execution environment and it runs. So all of that is sitting in the background and ready to go. Yeah, don't even have to spin up a micro VM, you're saying, because there's a no. there's an execution environment sitting there waiting for me, most likely, and it's just finding the right one that will execute my chunk of code. Yeah, correct. So, and that's the that's the the first time that your uh, function runs. So the first time that your function runs, uh, the, the micro VM needs to download your code. Well, the Lambda service downloads your code into this micro VM and off it runs. So it's literally the amount of time it takes for the code to copy and off it goes because uh, you know Java or Python, everything is there ready to go. Now, what then happens is there's uh, an, two parts of the Lambda function talked about the handler, that's the sort of business logic code that happens. But the rest of the function also runs during an init phase. And this is when we talk about the cold starts that people all sort of want to know and understand. So when a Lambda function first runs, it does a cold start. And this is all the stuff that happens outside of the function handler. And you can stick code in there like, oh, I need to maintain a database connection or download a secret or I want to do some initialization code, or I want to connect to my, uh, my SQL database. You know, that can be in the cloud, that could be on-prem, that could be anywhere else, uh, setting up the environment for you to use. And obviously that's gonna take a bit of time and that depends on, on your code. So once that is run, then the function invocation can happen. And so, you know, depending on your code, that could take tens of milliseconds up to, you know, minutes. If you've got a, uh, you know, something that's going to be really slow, that's going to take a bunch of time. You know, if, if you're running a Java, the Java virtual machine needs to, needs to spin up, you know, that's going to take some time. If you're using a compiled language like Go, well, that's because it's compiled, that's going to start very quickly. So you've got some different kind of things that you can play with, and there are lots of uh, tips and tricks to be able to reduce that cold start time. But then once your function has invoked and sent its results back, that is now seen as a warm available function. And the next request that comes in just goes straight to that warm environment and doesn't need to run the init code because the database connection is already there, the you know, secret has been downloaded from some external system, and the function can just evoke again. So that, war, that subsequent warm start is super duper fast. Now, people then think, well, Am I going to have a lot of cold starts? And is it something I really need to panic about? And the funny thing is developers get caught up with the cold starts because what you do is you, you test your Lambda function and then you, you, know, you redo it in your IDE and the process goes to zip and upload it and you kick off your Lambda function. You go, oh, again, you know, I'm having a three-second cold start and every time I iterate on my Lambda function, I'm getting a three-second cold start. Yeah, because you are updating the code of your Lambda function every time. Lambda saying, new function needs to run again. But what happens in a production environment is as more functions are running concurrently, each concurrent invocation of a function is going to have a cold start, but the subsequent invocations are going to be warm. And so you're going to find if you're running Lambda behind an API, if you are getting a thousand requests hitting your, uh, hitting your API each second, those first thousand requests, yes, they're going to be a, a cold start, but then for the next could be hours, all the subsequent calls, all the subsequent invocations are going to be warm starts. And so your actual percentage of invocations for cold starts is tiny. And it can be, you know, generally around 5%. So it is something to think about, but it's not something to think that it's going to completely overtake all of your, um, all of your functions. And we can talk about synchronous and asynchronous, because also in a synchronous request behind an API, then you care about that cold start. If you're building asynchronous applications, you don't care. Because if you've got a Lambda function that's sending a, uh, an email message waiting mm -hmm. for something that's polling off a queue, takes an extra second, do you care? No. Mm -hmm. So this is part of the event-driven thing where asynchronous invocation of Lambda functions, cold start, doesn't bother you. So Julian, this has been an excellent engineering level conversation so far about how all this is working. But part of cloud is economics. So when I am invoking these functions, what is this costing me? What's the Lambda pricing model? 
Yeah, absolutely. So Lambda is actually quite a simple pricing model. And you pay for execution duration rather than a server unit. So you know, we're not, you're not paying for anything on for the servers or anything underneath. So the two things you pay for, one is requests served. So that's just the number of requests, one to two, four, five, up to whatever, and the compute time required to run your code. So number of requests plus com- compute time, and that is metered in increments of one millisecond. Hmm. So if you've got a function that runs for three milliseconds, you pay for three milliseconds. If you've got a, and this is a, actually a recent announcement from December at reInvent. It used to be by 100 milliseconds, and now it's down to one millisecond. So that's as granular as you could possibly get for paying anything. And also there's a super generous um, free tier. You get, a, you get a million free invocations a month, and that is in perpetuity. So it's not just via free tier or something. So yeah, a million invocations per month, per region, per account. So there are many businesses out there who are running you know, a decent amount of Lambda invocations with multiple accounts, and they're not paying anything. They're just within the free tier. Right. And, wow. So, I mean, I would like to pay by the picosecond. So I'm hoping that comes out. <laughs> I, I will put that request in. Okay, <laughs> I got to imagine. So is the initialization time that you talked about earlier, is that included as part of that execution time that I'm being charged for? Or is it just when the the init is done and the handler kicks off? Uh, bits of both. And I, I don't want to get into too much detail with it as well, but there are there are different ways that the Lambda functions can run, but I would think that it's best actually to assume that your initialization code is also going to be charged as well. There okay. are some nuances to it. There are uh, some scenarios where it's not charged and you get some extra compute boost for that as well. But I think just to keep it simpler, yes, let, let's assume that you are charged for the whole life cycle of your Lambda function. So if I were developing some code to run in Lambda, it would behoove me to make that the most efficient code possible because I am being charged by how long it takes to execute. Correct. But because you have this one millisecond billing, if you're not running a server that is running a process 24 hours a day, even if that process is processing one request a minute, that server is sitting there idle for, you know, a long portion of its day, which you are still paying for. So this is the one one of the value propositions for Lambda is that you do not pay for idle. When your functions aren't doing anything, you aren't paying for anything. You're not paying for some server or container or some process to hang around waiting for something to come in. Right, right. That actually, I think that's a good lead into examining what some of the use cases are when it comes to Lambda, because we, we've been talking a lot of theory and, and architecture, but I need the reason to actually use this thing. And I, I have a couple that I've thought of on my own and I've actually used in the past, but I'm curious, what are the primary and best use cases for using Lambda over other technologies in AWS? Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, I could give you the flippant answer of whenever you have some code do you want to run to respond to an event. And that is true because <laughs> that's the whole that's the whole premise, uh, premise of Lambda. But, you know, a number of use cases. The one I was talking about being behind an API, you, know, you hit an API, do a put get request or something. It's going to hit API gateway, our API service, and behind the scenes run a Lambda function. That Lambda function is going to maybe pull something from a database, post something to a da- database, connect to something, and respond back to the client. So that's a synchronous requests, um, a web front end, a web front end, very common use case for Lambda. The cool thing about this is you're generally not one running one Lambda function. You could have separate Lambda functions for put, for get, a whole sort of workflow of, uh, of um, and collection of Lambda functions that can pull different parts of your application, one kind of thing. So that's behind the API. Uh, Lambda does something in response. Then data processing is a huge kind of thing. Um, so you upload a file, you um, have some data that's streamed in via uh, you know, an IoT endpoint, or it may be... Um, via some WebSocket connection or something like that, just streaming data. Lambda is excellent because it's just going to see that uh, see that data come in and do some transformation on that. You know, is it going <clears> to <throat> calculate some averages? Is it going to munge it up? Is it going to stick it into some other format to plonk onto another system? Whatever it's going to do, so it acts as part of a pipeline for data processing. And then you know, scheduled events, cron jobs—that's a whole kind of thing. You know, how many people are running servers out there which are just running a cron job? You know, every night at midnight, you know, let's uh, prepare this PDF report. Uh, you know, four times an hour, let's make sure that we are copying a file from here to there. You know, these are great use cases for Lambda because you don't need to again have these uh, 
um, scheduling services that are up and, run, up and running all the time uh, doing something. So, yeah, uh, anything that's uh, event-driven, so something that can create a, an event, and those events are super broad. Even uploading a record to a database, something like DynamoDB is our key value database store, a number of other database technologies as well. Just the act of uploading uh, or adding a record to the database, deleting or doing any you know, CRUD operation to a database can automatically fire off a Lambda function. So you know, that's got a whole bunch of use cases. And that does sort of twist the mind a bit about thinking about how you can do, uh, how you can do computing. Because what do people do is they normally have some code, it uploads something to a database, and then in the same bit of code, they've got to do some you know, retry logic if that didn't happen. They've got to you know, then do a whole bunch of separate processes within their code. How about if you just fire off an event to your database to say, add a record, new customer record, for example. And then in the background, Lambda goes, oh, how about that? We've got a new record in the database. Database, why don't we send them an email uh, notification? Why don't we add them to my uh, X system? Why don't we add them to Y system? Why don't we add them into our uh, data analytics kind of system? And so all of these kind of things can happen. Delete a record from a database, delete a customer. You can imagine all the workflows in your business that can kick off, and that can kick off automatically just because of these events, a database record being updated. It feels like the, the, the big idea here is I'm not having an EC2 instance or something that's going to be sitting there consuming CPU and costing me money constantly, whether I'm using it or not. I am using the bare minimum amount of CPU to execute my function on the air, off the air, as quickly as possible. And so I should, in, in theory, I get some economy. Uh, I was going to say economies of scale, but not not exactly. I'm getting I'm getting a, a very frugal use of compute to accomplish a particular task, uh, and that those are all those good use cases for Lambda. So if we flip this on its head, Julian, what's a, a poor use case for Lambda where it just doesn't make sense to use Lambda? Have you yeah, seen absolutely. people mis, misuse it? Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, th this is IT we're talking about. If you're going to create anything, you, the weird and wonderful things people are going to abuse your services for, that's part of the fun. I will get to that, but I, I just want to um, hop back to what you were saying, because that is, all, you know, that is one of the incredible use cases of, of Lambda is this pay-by-use model. And so you're not having to think as strongly about scalability as well. So if you think if, you, if you've got one event that uh, kicks off the second, or you've got a thousand events that kicks off in the second, you don't have to even plan for that. It's just going to happen in the background. Mm. That's one of the amazing powers of it is the scale up and then also the scale down. So think of it, you've got you know, a restaurant booking system. Uh, you know, Friday night, it's going to be all kind of super busy. You know, on a Monday morning, people aren't going to be buying uh, tacos or pizzas or whatever, that kind of thing. You don't have to manage the scaling down of that. Oh, I've got, you know, 100 EC2 instances, yeah, on a Monday, I think we're going to be able to deal with three. And then as the load comes in, well, for lunchtime, let's add that up to 100. And whatever. Don't have to do that. Lambda is going to scale up and scale down automatically. And it's not something you need to think of or aware of or even understand the infrastructure that is just spinning up and down um, besides, uh, in the background. That was my sidebar. Let me go back to the, the bad use cases for Lambda. Well, uh, I mean, I can put my marketing developer advocate uh, hat on and say, well, we're always increasing use cases day by day that you can use even use Lambda <laughs> for even more features, <laughs> which is true, but let's not be trite about it. So, so one, of the, uh, one of the constraints with Lambda is Lambda functions can run for 15 minutes. So that's the longest time that a Lambda function can take to run. Okay. Uh, so if you need something that runs for 30 minutes or an hour, that's sort of out of bounds of, uh, of, of Lambda. And people are thinking, well, you know, why this arbitrary limit of 15 minutes? And we like to think of it is it's one of the ways that we can solve one of the hard problems of security and maintenance, because those kind of things are harder when things stick around for longer. <clears throat> so the longer it stays, the more complicated it become, becomes. It's harder to spread the workloads around. And you get things like affinity and state, and those get far uh, far more complicated. And obviously, security—the more you know, the longer something stays around, it's just ripe for you know possibly something uh, to go wrong. So the idea of lambda is to have this sort of temporal ephemerality. Uh, I'm sure that's a word. Ephemerality uh, it is now. <clears throat> yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm owning it, but uh, yeah, ephemeral <laughs> something that's temporary. It's going to be yeah. ephemeral. And so the idea of Lambda behind the scenes, uh, you know, you've got these uh, isolated execution environments that are being cycled and cleared out all over the 
all over the time. And, you know, it's one request, one execution environment. So, you know, Lambda functions, let alone uh, within the same um, function, let alone within the same account, let alone between customers, you know, they're not sharing these execution environments at all. So that's one kind of thing. Uh, and that also does a consistency of performance because, you know, in a distributed systems, you're not sharing stuff in the same way. So that, that's the time, uh, the time limit kind of thing. The other sort of constraint is the processing power. So you can allocate uh, recently, based uh, from December, you can now allocate up to 10 gig of RAM to a Lambda function. That's up from three. And you can allocate up to six, uh, which proportionally you don't allocate, you just allocate memory. That's the one dial, but up to 10 gig that then proportionally adds up to uh, six virtual CPUs. So if you've got less than, I think it's 1.8 gig of memory, um, then it's using a single CPU and that sort of ramps up up to up to the mm. 10 gig. So <clears throat> people also think, well, hang on, uh, from November last year, before we had this, I had a job that ran for 15 minutes, took 15 minutes to run. Now, if you had a, sorry, a job that took just under 45 minutes to run, but now with a tripling of the memory allocation and the proportional CPU allocation, that job could run under 15 minutes, you know, that you could really simplify your architecture by going with Lambda. So that's the second constraint. So we've got a time constraint, we've got a, a, a resource constraint. So you can't create a Lambda function with a terabyte of RAM. Sorry, <laughs> we need to run our Minecraft service somewhere. <laughs> um, the other is if you are using important socket model. I've been talking about event-driven computing, you know, where an event happens and Lambda kicks off automatically. You know, some people aren't there, some people like their ports and sockets, and I'm pretending there's a huge big grin from the networking pack that pushes people to listening <laughs> because, yeah, we, grow, we live in a ports and socket world. And, you know, the whole the container ecosystem is still is very much in a ports and socket world. You know, huge amounts of, uh, of work going on there, and that's absolutely great. But if, you don't, if you're not wanting to move from a port and socket uh, view, a port, port and sockets implementation, rather move to an event-driven architecture, well, you know, Lambda's not going to be a good case, use case for that. Uh, and the other one is, you know, Lambda's on a general compute substrate for EC2 instances. You know, then we haven't got GPUs that are available to Lambda. We haven't got, you know, some other... Uh, funky hardware that you can maybe plug in. Um, you know, you can't plug a USB key uh, to run your dongle for Lambda, you know, all these kind of things. So so these are sort of come, uh, <laughs> some of the constraints with Lambda. But, you know, we actually like to think some of those constraints are superpowers for Lambda because it focuses you on what you're doing. This is your function code that's going to run. You make it short, sharp, yeah. sweet, and powerful. Yeah. You've still got 10 gig of RAM. You've still got six virtual CPUs in 15 minutes. You can do a heck of a lot. And if you can't do that in 15 minutes, you know some things are really suited to breaking that up because you've literally got an unlimited parallel supercomputer over here. So if there's a way people can tweak their applications to be able to uh, be more parallel, uh, have more parallelism within their within the architecture, and then you know you can you can go way higher and way broader than you than you would normally think. Constraints can be very liberating. Yeah. We paused the episode for a bit of training talk. Training with CBT Nuggets. If you're a day two cloud listener, you are, you're listening to the podcast right now, then you're probably the sort of person who likes to keep up your skills as am I. Now, here's the thing about cloud as I've dug into it over the last few years. It is the same as on-prem, but it's different. The networking is the same, but different due to all these operational constraints you don't expect. And just when you have your favorite way to set up your cloud environment, the cloud provider changes things or offers a new service that makes you rethink what you've already built. So how do you keep up? Training. Now, this is an ad for training companies. What did you think I was going to say? Obviously, training. And not just because sponsors CBT Nuggets watch your business, but also because training is how I've kept up with emerging technology over the decades. I believe in the power of smart instructors telling me all about the new tech so that I can walk into a conference room as a consultant or project lead and confidently position a technology to business stakeholders and financial decision makers. You want to be smarter about cloud? CBT Nuggets has a lot of offerings for you from absolute beginner material to courses covering AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud skills. Let's say you want to go narrow on a specific topic. Okay. For example, there is a two-hour course on Azure security. Maybe you want to go big. Alrighty then. There is a 42-hour AWS certified as SysOps administrator course. And there's a lot more cloud training offerings in the CBT Nuggets catalog. I just gave you a couple of examples to whet your appetite. In fact, CBT Nuggets is adding 40 hours of new content every week, and they help you master your studies with available virtual labs and accountability coaching. 
All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut up now and get to the part that you actually care about, which is the special offer of free stuff that you get from CBT Nuggets because you listened to this entire spot, you awesome human. First, visit cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. There you will find that CBT Nuggets is running a free learner offer. They've made portions of their most popular courses free. Just sign up with your Google account and start training. This free learner program is a great way to give CBT Nuggets a try. Now, as a bonus, everyone who signs up as a free learner will be automatically entered into a drawing to win a six-month premium subscription to CBT Nuggets. So this is a no-brainer to me. Just go do it, cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. That's cbtnuggets.com slash cloud. And now, back to the podcast that I so rudely interrupted. So, I mean, when we've been talking about Lambda so far, it's mostly, we're talking about the idea of a single action function. This is a function, it has an event, it does something and then it's done. It's finished its work. But I, I think most applications that I would work on today are built up of tens or hundreds of functions uh, behind the scenes, all doing things. And it sounds like if you haven't made that move to event-driven or sort of like a, uh, what would I call this, a cloud-native approach to an application, Lambda is probably not going to be a good fit for that use case. If you've got like a traditional three-tier application that's serving uh, web content, maybe that's not a good fit right away. You're going to have to do some work. Potentially, yes. But some of that work can really pay out. Now I'm going to use an example. Let me think of something. Something like a PHP and a LAMP stack. <clears throat> so, you know, very common architecture all over the web. web <clears throat> Linux, Apache, MySQL, and, and PHP. You know, mm -hmm. lots of websites run on that. The thing is, if you're going to be running Apache, yeah, that's a server to manage. You've got to scale it up. You've got to scale that down. The whole bunch of work for managing Apache may not necessarily be hard, but you know, this is something you've got to think of. So a serverless approach would be migrating that to API Gateway. And that's, you know, it's not a lift and shift, but it's not that complicated of uh, architectural change. And the thing is, you land up removing a whole bunch of code, removing a whole bunch of patching, API Gateway is all sorted. Now, you can, MySQL can stay the same, uh, connections to MySQL, PHP can stay the same. And the L can sort of stand for Lambda. So what people have, uh, what people have done is they don't necessarily have to split their application up into a whole bunch of different Lambda functions. They can start by the API gateway, as it did with uh, Apache, has a, bunch, a whole bunch of different routes. You could have 10 different routes within your application. You could still send that to a single Lambda function. Yeah, it's gonna be a big Lambda function doesn't have to respond to a single event. You could have 10 different events all go into that Lambda function. So that, that is a way that you can take advantage of some of the benefits. You don't have to manage your API, and you can sort of, in a way, lift and shift some of your code, your Lambda code, your, uh, your PHP running code into a Lambda function, and then take on the benefits of that. And that's going to scale up and down and scale, uh, scale up and down automatically. But then, you know, I'm the first one to say, don't go and re-architect uh, re -architect your application just for funsies. I mean, you know, <laughs> we live in the real world here. It's like, but, ooh, I'm bored. I don't have anything else to do at work. I'm going to rebuild my application. But, you know, an approach is you have an issue, you have a, a, a scaling problem, you have an availability problem, you've got a risk problem, I don't know, any, any kind of, or you want to add some more functionality. You know, very often uh, a common use case. And, you know, uh, people tell us they love the approach of, well, now, what's the quickest way that I can get that functionality or I can make this change? And yeah, you know, the old way of doing things when you know how to do things, yeah, set up a bunch of fleet of servers, I've got to manage, patch that and do that. Yeah, that's one way of doing things. But people are sort of starting to cotton onto the idea of, well, if I use these managed services and Lambda, actually to add that little bit of functionality is way quicker because I don't have to manage all the infrastructure underneath. Now, if that bit of functionality is something new and you haven't got a fleet of servers hanging around, well, that's great. You don't need to set up you know, a new pod, a new cluster, a new whatever to do that. So you know, we get a lot of people who are just needing to add some functionality or they've got a scalability challenge or they want to break things apart because you know, it's taking them you know, six weeks to get a little change in their application because they've got this huge, big, chunky application. And it's like, oh man, this is just way too hard to iterate through it. My CI/CD pipeline goes on fire whenever I do it. I have 10 people pulling their hair out and having to manually merge changes, you know, all that kind of operational kind of stuff. And so people say, well, my PHP app, I've got 10 of those little uh, functions that are already in the app. Well why don't I just split those 10 little roots out and make them 10 individual Lambda functions? Because you know what? 
when how many people are actually writing to my uh, my um, lamp stack? Well, not that many. People aren't people aren't writing stuff into my database, but reads from my database. Well, I'm getting flooded by these reads kind of things. Mm. But you know, I'm running the scalability for my writes and the scalability of my reads are at the moment wedded together. And uh, maybe that's not ideal, or I'm having some issues with that. So someone can literally just start and say, well, why don't I just pull out the reads for my application, set that over to another Lambda function that can scale independently. And yeah, I mean, this does go into the you know, concept of microservices and yeah. uh, you know, breaking up a monolith. And you know, it's not always the best idea. You know, they're great things for monoliths that they all do and they're easy to reason about and everything. But if you've got a problem, you've got an issue, you're hitting some sort of challenge, you know, heading to a microservices approach is a good way to do this. And you know, Lambda is in a way, a really good use case for these microservices components. Julie, I want to ask you about state, kind of a kind of a basic thing here. When I'm running my Lambda function, um, it runs, there's uh, something, it does a something, or it computes something, there's a result maybe. Um, so there's some state there, some chunk of data that probably needs to go somewhere. Now, you had mentioned in when you're first standing up that Lambda function that maybe it needs to pull up to a database. So is that something that happens where it writes to a database that's somewhere? Um, or is it the responsibility of the code that called the Lambda function to receive the result back and then it writes to the database? Um, can be all of the above, just to annoy you and not give you a, <laughs> a single answer. <laughs> We're in IT. It depends. Uh, yeah, so state is obviously handled differently for serverless and functions as a service um, systems, but it doesn't have to be entirely differently because Lambda functions can read and write to databases. So if your state is in the database, it's the Lambda function that can just write code into a database or read code from a database. And even then, I mean, we're talking a lot about Lambda because that is the focus of what, we, what, what we're chatting to, but there are also a load of other serverless integrations that can read and write things to databases without going via Lambda. API Gateway, for example, can write a uh, write a uh, write something into a, a database directly so you know, you know if there's an, if that um, database write doesn't need to be transformed through the URL or anything why even have a lambda function there in the in in the middle so you know you've got you've got all these other kind of services which can move things around so a couple of different ways read and write from a database that is your state no problem um, you know if your database is going to be can be something traditional can be a relational database can it be a key value store you know whatever any number of database obviously if lambda is going to scale out hugely you need to start thinking about well am i going to be overwhelming my database in the back end that's the same kind of concern you're having if you're running ec2 instances or containers mm. or anything same kind of thing another one is file storage so uh, last year we came out with EFS for Lambda, and that EFS is our uh, you know cloud NFS storage uh, system, and basically you can attach an NFS mount to Lambda functions. So when a Lambda function spins up, it's got access to a file store, and so that can read and write data from NFS. That's another way of doing state. The other way of doing state is passing state as the events through your application. Now, when I was talking earlier about just grokking this kind of event-driven uh, event-driven thing, you know, state doesn't need to be necessarily a common collection because sometimes state is ephemeral; it's only temporary. For example, someone someone uploads a file to S3. I want to then read that file from S3. I want to do transformation on it. Let's think for an example. I'm doing image manipulation. Okay. I'm doing image manipulation on this. I want to. It's a photo taken on a green screen. I want to write a Lambda function that's going to read that image from S3 and it's going to remove the green screen, uh, that green screen and dump it to another S3 bucket. I've got a source bucket. I've got a destination bucket. I've got another Lambda function that then pulls from that second destination bucket, which is now a source bucket, does some transformation, maybe adds your company logo or a funky background or whatever, and pumps it to another S3, um, S3 uh, service. Another Lambda function can then uh, ping that, uh, pick that up from an S3 bucket and maybe dump it elsewhere, which is then going to be you know, sent to a third party to print on shipping labels or uh, you know, a big poster or, or that kind of thing. So all of those states are transition states, and it doesn't have to be the same object storage, doesn't have to be the same file system. It's a pipeline that you create that moves the st state and moves this data through whatever processing you're doing. Hmm. 
You could even have like a cron lambda that runs and cleans up all of these buckets from images that have been processed so they don't just sit around taking up space. And now it's now you're thinking, now you're whoa, thinking, or, <laughs> or even better is something like S3 has a lifecycle thing where not having to write any lambda functions or any code, you can just say anyone that hasn't been accessed for a week, dump it out to archive storage. Once it hasn't been accessed for three months, seven years, whatever compliance kind of thing, get rid of it. So yeah, that's the ultimate thing. I mean, Lambda's cool, but if you don't have to write Lambda functions, don't have to write code, that's even better. Even better. Yeah, I'm curious, is that using Lambda under the covers, the lifecycle? <laughs> uh, you know, I actually I actually don't know. And I like that I don't know because it's cool. The, the magic happens behind the scenes. <laughs> so if I'm developing one of these Lambda functions, and I've actually used Lambda and, uh, and some other functions as a service things to do, what I would normally have like a, a cron box doing like, cause we used to have like a utility box that just ran all these cron jobs all the time. This is like the replacement for that. If I'm developing this code, can I do it locally? Can I do it inside a code editor and run it locally to test it out? Or is this, I have to upload it, test it against Lambda, change it, upload it again, wait for my environment to warm up. Like, can I run it locally? I guess is what I'm asking. You definitely can. And it's, it's certainly faster than copying it onto a USB drive and then driving it over to AWS uh, data center <laughs> facility, plugging it in. <laughs> Yeah, let's not, let's not get too silly. This is getting ridiculous. <clears throat> yes, so you can develop Lambda functions locally superbly well. A number of different ways you can do this. There are, there's AWS CLI, which means you can interact with the Lambda service remotely, but from your local workstation. So you can package up, up a function, you can uh, upload it, you can invoke it, you can see the results, you can pipe the logs, you know, anything you can do with the AWS CLI, you can also do with Lambda. Now, there are other serverless frameworks that are really good for helping to develop serverless applications because they just make that process a little bit easier. Um, there's Terraform, there is Serverless Framework, and our own homegrown one at AWS, which is called the Serverless Application Model, or AWS SAM. Now, they do a whole bunch of different things. Part of it's a CLI is to create all the functions. Part of it is managing um, packaging the functions and deploying of the functions. That's the whole kind of thing. What they also do is allow you to test your functions locally. And what they actually do, I'll use Sam as an example, is it downloads a Docker, a Docker container, which pretends to be Lambda behind the scenes and invokes a function locally. So people use this for testing, <clears throat> particularly for unit testing as well. Hmm. Run, your, uh, run your piece of code. First time you need to uh, invoke it locally. Obviously, it takes a bit of time for that uh, container to come down. But then you know, each, uh, each iteration of the Lambda function after that is super quick. That's really yeah. interesting because you can, if I can do that with a Docker container, that implies that the execution environment that Amazon is running is separate from whatever the orchestration system is that Amazon is running to keep all the micro VMs alive and such. Correct. And that uh, I did say earlier that I was going to go into the sort of container image format, and I, I will do that because that adds another sort of whole mind blowing coolness to it. But um, yeah, let's we'll stick with the with the with the local invocation. But this, this increases as well. If you want to test API Gateway, for example, there is a local API Gateway. Let me pretend and mock to be and, and uh, to be API Gateway. So you can mm -hmm. run an API, you can run a Lambda function. There are mocks for a whole bunch of other kinds of systems. But this is something mm -hmm. also interesting to think of, is that the more you try to force things to uh, test and invoke locally, you're going to start uh, bumping into difficulties at some time because in a way you're trying to replicate the cloud locally to do all your testing. Sure, yeah. for a Lambda function, sure, for an API, a whole bunch of kind of stuff. <clears throat> you know, your Lambda function, you want to iterate really quickly, change this variable, rerun. Ah, oh, no, oh, the output's not correct, the input's not correct, let's iterate, iterate, iterate. But once you start connecting to a bigger system and you're connecting to a shared database and you've got multiple Lambda functions or you've got that whole, you know, S3 image processing pipeline going to, you know, mock S3 locally and pretend to have that running, you know, it's just not worth the hassle. And so people start to think about it as, well, why don't you start bring your testing to the cloud rather than your cloud to your test environment? So use your local testing, Lambda iterate quickly, quickly, quickly. But as, start, as soon as you start integrating with these more other systems, it's not going to take that long to upload that code uh, to the Lambda service again and then run it with the full, you know, unbridled power of um, <laughs> of AWS Cloud. Right. I think I think you you said it just right where you're doing your unit testing, that initial test just to make sure, does it work? Once that unit testing is complete, you move to integration testing. Okay, now that's going up. You're deploying that up in the cloud to test it. 
And then when you do your end-to-end test, now you're working with all kinds of live systems. So if you're walking yeah. through that testing lifecycle, unit testing in SAM is happening locally, and then everything else, you probably want to push that up. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you know, people talk about the, you know, the offline model and all that kind of thing. Yes, well, you know, when I'm on an airplane and I need to be able to iterate <laughs> on my Lambda functions, it's like, yeah, you know, we hear that, but, you know, you can only go so far. Yeah. So, you, yeah, you can test Lambda locally, you can test API Gateway locally, and there are a few n- other things you can do. But if you're going to be extending your testing out, you know, think of the bigger picture and you know, test with the power of AWS behind you. Sometimes it's okay just to sit on the airplane and relax. I know. Yeah. Airplanes that start to have internet access. <laughs> yeah. That too. <laughs> airplanes that have internet access. No, 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 no. <laughs> now, you mentioned a few times, Julian, about container image support. And I know, I know, in, in the real world of Lambda, it's not containers, right? It's these, these micro VMs, but people love containers. And you said there's some additional functionality there. So walk me through that. What's, what's going on with container images? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, stepping back, containers is an interesting word because it, it, it's a whole number of different things. You know, when people talk about containers, they're often talking about isolation technology. We're like, okay, when I was talking about Firecracker, those micro VMs before, you know, that's an isolation technology. So, you know, Lambda does isolation using uh, Firecracker micro VMs instead of the container isolation. So, you know, containers sort of uh, a tick box. Uh, you know, containers are portable. <clears throat> containers are something that you can move between different environments. You can try them on your own, own laptop. You can upload them to the cloud. Uh, Lambda does part of that. You know, it's not 100% uh, across every, every kind of thing. But, you know, Lambda does have a way that you can use uh, containers to uh, test things locally and upload things to, uh, upload things to the cloud. But the other part of containers is, uh, well, the other, one of the part of containers is, is all the tooling around containers and you know, CI CD pipelines and Docker and the Docker CLI and all of these amazing tools and security scanning and all these kind of things that people have made for containers. And super awesome, super useful, you know, enterprises, startups are all using this amazing tooling. Now, with Lambda, with Lambda and containers, it's the fourth bit that we've done a cool thing with Lambda. And what we've done is, Containers also means a packaging format. And that basically means your Docker file and what you put in your Docker file to create this eventual thing that you're going to put on an isolated environment. And so what we've done for Lambda is we've said, you can now create your functions, but they packaged as container images. And you create them using a Docker file. So it's not that different from a Docker file you may love or know beforehand. And you say, I want my function to start with a um, Java or Python or uh, you know, Node.js 12 base image. So you pull that base image down. We have some uh, provided images from Lambda. And those images help just to make the connectivity between uh, the Lambda function code and the Lambda service. Or you can create. You you could use Alpine Linux, for example, if you want. And then there's another lambda. Uh, there's another container image that you can pull down to make that connection between Lambda. And then in that, you copy your code. You uh, you know uh, install your dependencies. You know this could be pip install or npm modules for Node. And you can literally build up your package of your function that's going to run. And then you upload that to ECR, which is basically our uh, Elastic Container Registry. So think of it like AWS's version of Docker Hub, for example. And that's just a container image that you then upload. And all it does is, is contains all the stuff in one big blob. I kind of used really bad words here. <laughs> <laughs> um, an image of all, your, of all the stuff that's going to make up your Lambda function. Then when we were talking before in detail all about, all about how the Lambda service runs your function, it does it in the same way, but what it actually does is it then pulls down your container image and then just builds that ex- execution environment. So all the rest stays the same, still needs to be an, an event trigger, still needs to be a handler, still needs to be part of, you know, work with the Lambda service, but you can now package it as a container image and Lambda will run it. First thing people say is, well, you know, these can be up to 10 gig in size. That's going to be a horrible performance. What on earth are you thinking? We go, aha, we've got some clever tricks behind the scenes of what we do is we actually cache those image layers close to where Lambda runs. So if you are using the Node.js 12 provided image via Lambda, you know, we pre-cache that everywhere. And there are three levels of caches, da-da-da-da-da. When your function then runs for the first time during that cold start, we then cache that container image and more versions, more layers of it. So 
you know, Dockerfile has got a whole bunch of different uh, image layers. We cache as many layers as we can. And so ultimately, when your function runs, hopefully uh, much of the stuff's already in the cache, and then you can just run your uh, container image. And uh, function performance should be the same, obviously, depending on what you're gonna, what you're gonna do. But now the advantage of this is, is a fewfold. First of all, you can use the Docker CLI to build your functions. You can use you can use a Docker file, and you can use all the container tooling you love to create those images. You could put this in a pipeline. You could scan them for vulnerabilities. You can ship them into your uh, artifact repository. You can you know do a whole number of things uh, with that. And then ultimately, when you spit out your uh, container image uh, in the end, Lambda is then going to pick that up and it's going to run your function as it did before, but just packaged in a different way. I am amused that you said container tooling you love. <laughs> well, Julian, as we're getting to the end of the show here, I want to ask you about kind of the the, the, the state of Lambda in this current day here as we're recording this, the end of March 2021. Are there brand new features you'd like to highlight or maybe some roadmap things if you're allowed to talk about them that you could tease us with what's coming up next for Lambda? Yeah, certainly. Let me just look at our roadmap tool and uh, Lambda's coming out with, oh, no, that was close. I nearly got into trouble doing all of the roadmap things. We need to <laughs> keep some of the toys. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've come out some, with, with some cool stuff. I mean, just going back, the millisecond billing, the larger Lambda function sizes, container image support. Uh, there's something for, for Lambda extensions, which allows you to plug in you know, observability and um, security tools. And you know, so you can, so, so one of the things we haven't talked about is, you know, we're trying to we're trying to connect with partners much more. Lambda doesn't need to be unique. And if you've got container tooling you already use, if you use um, you know, an observability partner, it shouldn't be weird, it shouldn't be difficult, it shouldn't be different with Lambda. Lambda extensions helps, uh, helps with that. And you know, one of the real premises of serverless architectures is when you hand over the operational responsibility for a lot of these functions, they are always just going to get be better, bigger, faster, more cheaper as things go, as things go on. So you know, the roadmap is quite simple. There's always going to be uh, more functionality happening. There's, it's always going to get, you know, cheaper over the long run. Uh, you're going to be able to do more things, you know, bigger function sizes, uh, you know, cheaper with one millisecond billing and all things going to happen. I mean, I know you sort of sitting on the edge of your seats, everyone, wait, you know, waiting for my big drop of the big kind of Lambda features that are going to run. <laughs> I'm probably going to disappoint you, but... What I do say is that, you know, we are, we are always listening to customers. And I'm not saying that in a, just a, a flippant way that, yes, we listen to customers and we do that. Literally 90% of all the stuff we ever build is based on customer feedback and, uh, and requests. And those other little 10% things is we sort of invent on your behalf and we think of the cool, crazy, awesome stuff that you hadn't even thought of and, uh, uh, and that we can do. So what I would suggest is serverless is really an awesome mindset to be able to think of not managing any of this infrastructure yourself. The security is so much better. The scalability is so much better. Hand that over to AWS. We're going to do a great job doing that. You get to focus on your business logic, your business code, and you can uh, and you can fly. And so, you know, we have companies doing a serverless first approach where they decide we're going to go serverless for as many kind of things. Yet they bump up the constraints and they may need to spin out and do other kind of things. So that's what I'd suggest. Really have a look at, uh, at serverless uh, from a mindset. You know, don't get too bunkered down necessarily into all the technical kind of details. It's super easy to get going. Generous free tier, uh, you know, easy to play with, uh, you know, hopefully easy to learn. And yeah, reach out if you've got any questions. I'm more than happy to help. Your title might be developer advocate, Julian, but uh, I see evangelist, man. I I think. <laughs> well, yeah, that that is part. Yeah, that is, that is part of the job, and, and we, we do have a whole team of evangelists at AWS. Uh, but yeah, our advocates we work with in the product org say it. It's slightly different, but um, I mean, I I, I come from an infrastructure background. I was literally, mm. you know, racking, stacking Windows servers, Linux boxes, you know, virtualization hypervisors. I did all of that. You know, worked with uh, infrastructure teams. You know, net, uh, firewall rules. You know, load balancers, all that kind of stuff, and that's what sort of kickstarted the buzz for me with serverless. Was like, oh man, there's a lot of this stuff that <laughs> I just don't want to have to look after. And I've been doing it for 25 years, and I love the tech; it's all cool. But there's got to be a better way. And so, you know, that that was my initiation story of the light bulb went off for serverless. Yeah, now I get to play with all the cool toys. Well, Julian Wood, how do people follow you on the internet? You got Twitter, you got a, a blog, maybe a book you wrote that you'd like to tell people about. Go for it. 
Certainly. Well, the best way to find out all about serverless and AWS is just a website called serverlessland.com. And that's got uh, you know blogs, videos, learning path series, everything to do about serverless on, um, uh, on, on AWS. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Julian underscore Wood. And, you know, I will, you know, I'm here, there and everywhere. We have a thing called Tech Talks um, uh, with AWS where we, you know, do do uh, content. We've got a serverless office hours every Tuesday, well, afternoon. I'm in London, evening in London. It's sort of morning if you're on the West Coast uh, and somewhere in between if you're on the East Coast. But yeah, every week, serverless office hours, an hour, an hour of us uh, streaming on Twitch. Bring all your questions, bring all your concerns. Yeah, we'd really love to hear from you. And yeah, there's one other thing. If you're wanting to learn about service and you know absolutely nothing, and I've, confu- I've partly confused you and partly inspired you, um, there are a couple of workshops. Um, go and have a look at a workshop. One is called Innovator Island, and there are another one's called Wild Rides. It's a fictional unicorn startup, of course. Why wouldn't you? Um, yeah, and those are great ways to play. When you don't need to know anything, you know, you need an AWS account, and literally in a few hours, you can link a whole bunch of these things together and you know, see some code, and you can sort of Hopefully, it'll sparkle some neurons in your head that can connect all the stuff together. <laughs> sparkle some neurons. I like that. Julian, again, thank you very much for joining us on Day 2 Cloud today. This was great. I got I got a lot. I got a lot from this conversation. Again, much much appreciated. And thanks to you out there for listening. Uh, virtual high fives. You, you really are awesome for making it through to the end of this show and bolstering up your knowledge about, about serverless in this case. And if you have suggestions for future shows, things that you want Ned and I to cover, we, we want to hear from you. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow or fill out the form in Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Now, if you'd like to hear more from the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, we have a free resource for you, the weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. When you subscribe to that, we immediately sell your email address to anyone that'll pass. We, we don't do that. We don't, we don't do that at all. You, uh, genuinely, we send it out weekly. Human Infrastructure Magazine is all about the best stuff that we found on the internet, uh, opinion and analysis of what's going on in IT, and we send it to you for free. Thousands of people are subscribed, and you can too. All you got to do is packetpushers.net slash newsletter. Put in the info and you'll get the next issue. Until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.